0: To the Todd DeVoe show exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. And today, um, oh, I guess we're still doing it, right? I was just looking at my calendar. It looks like we're still in uh, Earth Week. We went from Earth Day that was created in 1970 to Earth, Earth Week. So, uh, what are you doing uh, to help prepare our world? Uh, you know, plant a tree or, or do what you're doing during Earth Week. <laughs> Earth And um, and so, yeah, I, I, I love this. I actually, you know, I'm, I'm a quasi, I should say quasi. I, I am into the environment. I like going outdoors. I like doing outdoor stuff. So I think, being, you know, being a tree hugger a little bit for, on my end. And, and uh, so I like celebrating the idea of making Earth better, right? So that's that's Earth Week. So celebrate Earth Week. And what are you doing? In the comments over there, tell me what you guys are doing. For Earth Week. I can tell you this weekend, my family, we are planting uh, our spring garden. So that's what we're doing for Earth Week. Um, but that's what we're here to talk about. We are kind of we're here to talk about sustainability and preparedness and readiness and all sorts of cool stuff. And like how people can help each other. And I have Alicia Johnson here with me uh, from Two Lynchpin Road. Um, this is her company, but she's an experienced emergency manager as well. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me. Morning, everyone. I'm West Coast, so it is morning here.
0: It is morning. Yeah, We're West Coast yeah. here. Yeah, just waking up, drinking my coffee. And like I say, you know, I, I sometimes I wish that we could like have like a pre-show where people could tune in because some of the conversations that we have prior to the show are are, are fun. We're having a great conversation just about food sustainability and preparedness and stuff. And, uh, you, you know, uh, it was a good conversation. We could continue that a little bit. But before we do that, I want to get into who you are and why you created your organization. So tell me your backstory.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I um, started in emergency management in 2004, right after I graduated from college. I was one of, not with a degree in emergency management because in 04, there weren't any degrees in emergency management. I mm-hmm. uh, have a background in organizational communications and political science. And really enjoyed risk communications when I was in college, and uh, got into emergency management through the chemical stockpile emergency preparedness program in Colorado. Uh, and now, which um, that program is closing out, and they're one of my one of my clients at Two Lynchman Road. So super excited to be working with them again. Um, but really. Didn't know what emergency management was at the time and certainly didn't know what the chemical stockpile emergency preparedness program was and went through the interview process, which to this day is one of the most complex interview processes I've gone through. And remember uh, in the conversation, someone asking me what emergency management was. And I said, (laughs) I thought, for you know, I paused for a moment and I thought, can I, can I, cap dance my way through this. And I was like, probably not, I should just tell the truth. And I said, you know, I, I don't know. But what I do know is that this job as the public information officer has everything to do with the blue line that comes across the bottom of the TV when crisis happens. And, and that's the purpose of this role is to make sure that people know what to do in the middle of a crisis. And um, that answer landed me the job. And I could never get out of emergency management. I kept trying to like branch out in different ways. And it just did not happen. Um, and ended up out here on the West Coast working for San Francisco Emergency Management. And then uh, only recently, about three and a half, four years ago, uh, transitioned over to work with the University of California, Berkeley. And then during the pandemic, decided that I had a little bit of extra time because we were working remotely, and I'd start a consulting firm on the side, and so yeah, of course, right? Everyone has extra time in, in a pandemic, um, and it, you know what, what really struck me was that there are organizations, private sector, local governments, Um, women owned businesses, uh, those who are historically marginalized, who need emergency management help. Mm.
0: Um,
1: some know it, some don't, uh, but the importance of really just connecting with them and helping them build their business in a sustainable way so that when crisis occurs, whether that's a pandemic or otherwise, uh, they are resilient and have the capacity to continue to help themselves and help their communities.
0: Yeah, when I did my, under, I got my same with you. I, I the public or emergency management didn't exist in any way. Um, maybe it did somewhere, but not realistically where we could get to it uh, as as a degree. And so I took public administration, and but I really wanted to focus on what I did as on emergency management side of things. And I did my my senior thesis on um, uh, on the North uh, yeah on the Northridge earthquake and the and the Whittier Narz earthquake and both of those and what i did is i looked at who was affected impacted i really kind of got my my interest in doing the social impacts of disaster realistically back then and what i re- found is that private small women owned businesses are the hardest hit and don't recover uh from disasters and normally it's because they're in the service industry so they're doing things like you know beauty salons hair salons um nail salons uh service industry things like this where if they can't get up and running within three, four days, they're never going to open their doors again. And I, I I found that amazing. And I think that's something that we can do as, as government um, to help those businesses open their doors quickly. And, and, uh, but that's, that's, that's one of the things, but having you out there helping these businesses prepare and think ahead uh, of what it is to be resilient to a disaster, I think is critical. And, before the show started, we were talking about resiliency. What is your definition? Because I know it's a now it's a squishy word, which I'm kind of trying to move away from resiliency, but I'll tell you why in a second. But what is your definition of a resiliency and, and what does it mean yeah, to organizations? It,
1: it is a really squishy word. And you know, I first started in emergency management, and when you're in something, your your definition of the word is pretty crisp, right? Resilience is this. And I remember sitting on a plane once going to uh, uh, an exercise and uh, talking with my my seatmate who was probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years older than me at the time. And she worked in in education, in K through 12 education. And I was saying, oh, I'm, I work in resilience uh, in, in regards to emergency. She's like, what? She's like, that's so interesting. I also work in resilience, but it's related to education. And so, and I thought, oh wait, resilience works in all these other fields. And I was like, oh my God, of course it does. But when you're in it, you you kind of don't see that. So for me, the definition of resilience is the ability to bounce back quickly. Um, and that could be from a disaster or that could be from something else, right? It doesn't have to be from a crisis that you have some sort of ability for resilience and, and to, to, um, to kind of just regain your commitment or your strength or your direction. It also doesn't have to be resilience as a business or an organization, it could be individual um, or you know, daily you know, we're exercising some form of resilience. So I think that's, you know, it's a pretty nebulous definition, as you said, it's kind of squishy, um, but it's that idea that you're, you, you have thought ahead, you have a little bit of foresight and you have an idea of what that takes for you to, to be resilient. And you're willing and able to look around for different elements of resilience. So it might not manifest itself in the form that you think it will. Um, resilience might take the form of a loan in a disaster, but it might also be a a partnership that you weren't expecting Mm -hmm. um, that kind of helps you pivot and and continue to uh, increase your capability. And very quickly before before we talk a little bit more about resilience, I do want to say that, you know, one of the most surprising statistics for me globally is that women are more likely to die in a disaster than men. And I think that, global statistic cascades down into um, historically marginalized uh, business owners as well, right? If you're more likely to be impacted, your business is also more likely to be impacted um, in a disaster. And that probably isn't necessarily a positive impact. And so knowing that going in, that you're going to have an uphill battle, and you're going to need all the strength and capacity. And resilience uh, to succeed, I think is a huge part of, of that emergency planning and that disaster preparedness.
0: Absolutely. You know, I find that statistic always interesting um, because looking at that and seeing like where, where that is and it, it truly like, I don't want to go too deep into it, but some of the nations that they're, that, that study uh, um, focused on, they really have some major, major, issues, uh, specifically with valuing the life of anybody who's not in the upper caste system. And, and, yes. uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's just a lot of <clears throat> issues there, but yeah, you're right. It just is a, it's a sad statistic and, and it's get outside everybody. If you're in this business, get outside the of the United States for a little bit and see how things run. And then you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll see a different appreciation for the world when we, and I, I, that's the other thing, too, is I actually worked with uh, an international humanitarian um, uh, group out of Canada uh, that were working um, with um, the, the Islamic religion-centered areas. And the interesting part about it was because they're, they're out of Canada, um, because in the United States, really, in some areas like Miramar and stuff like we couldn't get into to help. Uh, working with them, they could they actually were able to open the doors, and they specifically focus on helping women in those Islamic countries to be able to survive after disaster. And um, it was it's tragic to see that, but yes, uh, I think I agree with you that that's something that we need to be working on as a as a as the world we should be looking at this and uh, look at what's happening over in um in the in Ukraine right now and areas like that, women and children that are impacted uh, by this current issue, you know getting back on resilience, and this is actually a, a good parlay to this. I, I, do you ever, have you ever read Nicholas Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile? Yes. Yeah, I, I really, I
1: really want is to... Is there an emergency reading. manager who hasn't read that book? If you haven't, you, have, you absolutely must <laughs> read it. Yes. It's required reading for this world, for this industry in the 21st century.
0: I would love to move to that model. I'd love to move the idea of you know, because he said okay, robustness and, and and resilience, they're not defined enough to what he was talking about. So he coined the term anti-fragile. And I'm like, holy smoke, that you're absolutely right. And how do we create the anti-fragile community? You know, like I know you're working on some of that stuff, and like what does it mean? Like, I think that's a more more concrete word than than resilience.
1: Yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think you know, one of the first steps towards creating that anti-fragile element is one understanding it and and also i think understanding the network in which you operate right a lot of times um in my background in local government we often would would say okay we can handle x y and z like we can do all of these things and then there was a certain element where you're like well we're not the expert in logistics okay well then we can't answer those questions okay no you're, you're wrong the network that we have as an organization, as a city, as a community, can answer those questions. And so we need to bring those people to the table to help us answer questions about logistics or about anything else, right? Um, And we saw that model kind of develop during COVID where we were really pushing private sector for innovation in relationship to vaccine development. Could we have pushed other parts of our community as well for more innovation in response to disaster and, Capacities, absolutely. And I think that's where it really becomes emergency management as a more holistic approach and using that element of foresight and saying, look, we know bad things are going to happen. We have to acknowledge that and be comfortable with saying we are a community that is at risk and or we're an organization that is at risk. Every organization is. We are not flawless. We are not. um, Even incredibly large organizations have risk. They have entire divisions dedicated to risk. Probably the bigger you are, the more risk you have. Um, But we also have the capacity to build strong networks to help us overcome that and to help us become more anti-fragile. You don't don't become anti-fragile alone.
0: Right.
1: And I think that is a huge part of whether you're a community or an organization, um, a small business or a large business recognizing that you have dependencies and the only way you become less de- you know less uh have less risk is through you know strengthening those vulnerabilities and strengthening those dependencies maybe you own them maybe somebody else does but having those conversations is really vital
0: and and there's there's two things in that one is going back to the resilient definition and i like using the, the ecology definition of where an organism um of that alone but in the ecosystem is able to re, to bounce back uh, from stressors that are put on it, and and I think I think that what we miss a lot of times and, and is that is the ecosystem, right? And our ecosystem, yes. if we call that our community, and you know, before the show, we're talking about how like you know I'm prepared, you know, I've been in this business for a long time, I know what to do, I've taken my own gospel, if you will, as I preach it out to to the residents that that I. That I work with you know through certain programs and stuff and my home is prepared for a disaster if my home stands and it doesn't burn down I'm going to be okay for a little bit not not for years I don't, I don't have like a bunker or anything like that but you know uh, on the other side of it though you know to, is your neighbor prepared right and that's really an important question because like you know either two things are going to happen one is you're going to Build a bunker literally around your house, and you're gonna like ah, no one can come through my castle doors, and, and that's not sustainable, right? Or you're gonna have to start helping your community, you, you know, mm-hmm. as as well. And, and so you have to get out of that mindset as a as a resident, right? Even as a business, that I'm circling my my wagons around my business and my com- my city or my my whatever, and I'm keeping keeping keep my footballs here, and I'm only playing with my with my tribe, right? Um, you know we're talking about the idea that there are some businesses that failed during covid right just i mean shut down uh and then others expanded and and thrived uh, during this during this period um, they found ways to work around uh, the issues you know is it the attitude of the organization um that that does that or is it? Luck. I mean, what do you think? What's your, your what's your professional opinion? Of like, why these businesses or or, or individuals did better during uh, this crisis than others?
1: I think that's such a great question. I you know the I want to see some research on that. I have thoughts, right? I I don't know the answer. Um, if I had to guess, I yeah, would say good. foresight played a huge role in that. Not necessarily. We saw the pandemic coming although if you were paying attention to the news, you did see something coming, right? Um, But that conversation of what would a pivot look like? Where would I explore if I had more money, more time, more whatever? It doesn't even have to be the foresight around a crisis is occurring, just What would i do that would help you know branch this out where's my curiosity taking me as an organization as a business owner and then you know pressing pause for a few moments during the opening days of the pandemic and and for many people what was um a very long lockdown uh and saying okay so how would i how would i pivot right where does that where do, where would I go if I'm going to explore this curiosity? I think the other thing that we haven't really talked about, and this is why it's so important for historically marginalized um, business owners is that you have to have some kind of reserve, some kind of cash reserve, whether that's mm-hmm. cash or a loan or a capacity VC investment, something where you can say, okay, I need a few days, a few weeks, a few months to figure out where I'm going to go. And that is really difficult in some sectors. It's really difficult in some organizations to be able to have that bandwidth to make that decision. And I think that's the other part of this. When we talk about businesses that, that were able to expand versus businesses that, that failed or had to close their doors. A lot of that is because they did or did not have a buffer. Um, And sometimes you can, Acquire that buffer over time, and sometimes that buffer is not available to you. And so, understanding that ahead of time and being able to explore options that may or may not be available to you um, is part of that. And maybe part of your resilience plan is if I don't have X, Y, and Z, then I have to close my doors. And knowing that this is the, you know, there's a line in the sand of what that looks like for you and for your organization um, versus. If I have x you know a, b, and c, then I can expand and I can move forward and just knowing those types of things ahead of time um, really help us move forward in a in a positive way
0: absolutely and and Elaine's been popping stuff up in here, and uh so she's resilience is getting back up in some of the, uh, with eventually goal to get back to normal operations. Right. I agree there. And I like the idea what she says down here at the bottom, she goes, I'd also think that those who thought outside of the box, the proverbial box, if you will, um, that you can't get from point A to point B in a straight line. Uh, what is another way? And you're right. Sometimes you have to zigzag, right? Um,
1: yeah, absolutely. I, and I think, you know, you, you might've expected, um, Your, you know, the loan to come in, your parents to provide money, your VC, um, you know, maybe your retirement portfolio, whatever that looks like, whatever your sources are, but those aren't available to you. And the same thing is if you're not ready for um, Paycheck Protection Act to, you know, to apply for that and have that capacity, then maybe you can't take advantage of it, right? And so those are, there are lots of different options that are available to you that, that you have to be ready to explore.
0: Yeah, I, I was working with a firm um on some stuff and uh, they had some large clients that uh that didn't pay during and they say hey, we'll pay you afterwards, but we just can't pay you right now. And mm-hmm. they're like, Oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? And it was some struggle. But um yeah, you know you're right. And some some firms can can absorb that loss for a short period of time, um, where others can't. You know, and what, let's 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 discuss this a little bit deeper regarding um People on the margins, uh, you know, where the, again mostly service industry, right? People, again, hairdressers, restaurants—a great example. Um, and, and let's talk about restaurants here for a second. And I, I don't want to out anybody in the hairdressing industry, but I can. I'll, we'll talk a little bit. Some interesting stories I heard about them, right? So restaurants. Um, some of them were like, "Okay, great. We have all the stock of food that we can't can't necessarily." uh cook right because we we can't open we can't let anybody in we're not really set up for takeout necessarily uh well let's sell our freaking groceries because people need egg and i thought that was an amazing it basically became a grocery store and i heard stories of countless small restaurants that survived just on doing that and I think mm-hmm. that's one of those things, that, like Elena said, is thinking outside the box. Instead of going, "Oh no, I, I have issues here," uh, let me sell my girls. What do you think of that? I think that's
1: ingenious, right? Where you're that third party supplier, and you're saying, "Okay, look, we have this capacity. In order for restaurant X to stay afloat, you know, we can teach you how to make your own—I don't know—tamales, right?" <laughs> and i that's what i would love to do i really stink at making those so like give me the kit and i can make it happen in my kitchen right with my with my son um and my husband and i think that's a key part of this is like wow if you can help us to learn how to do it ourselves then all of a sudden you've created a customer for life because as, as soon as you do get your takeout capacity up and running. Then you are like oh yeah I want to come back to this organization over and over and over again. Um, Where I am in Sonoma County, uh, a lot of outdoor dining popped up over. Mm -hmm. You know we we don't have snow, so a lot of outdoor dining popped up over time. Um, Many of that you know those organizations have taken over parking spaces. They're not going to give them back. They're going to continue to have outdoor dining now seasonally. um, You know tell the city says, sorry, we're taking your permit away and we need that parking space, right? Which probably will never happen because it's a huge economic driver for our community. So I think it's been really interesting to, to me to see how especially food organizations have been able to pivot and to um, grow their their capacity over time. Now, initially that's not growth. That's just trying to catch yourself up. Um, <laughs> Right. Like you're like, oh my gosh, I'm panicking. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But I think, you know, long term there is growth there. I in regards to hair salons, I have heard of people, you know, hopping on TikTok or Instagram live and teaching or scheduling some sort of, hey, I'll give you a 30 minute tutorial on how to cut your bangs. Or how to cut your husband's hair, or you know those types of things. So it's not necessarily, It's like more of a tutorial element than I'm going to cut your your hair myself, right? And and having that kind of conversation ahead of time. Those are quick pivots that maybe are not making ends meet necessarily, but are keeping you afloat enough that when things open up or things get back to somewhat back to normal, or you feel like you can continue to you know double down on a certain thing like takeout um, that you have the capacity to do that as opposed to shutting your doors. So it's not like, oh, we're going to help you pivot immediately from A to B, but we are, you know, giving you enough, you're getting enough bandwidth, just a tiny bit of breathing room that allows you to make the pivot more fully and more um, concretely into whatever the new world is. And that could be from pandemic or any other crisis,
0: right? Right. You're about interesting to some of the hair salons. Um, I, I never thought in my mind in my wildest dreams, if I was to like make a science fiction movie about an end of the world disaster. Where I think that the uh, beauty salons and hairdressers and uh, whatnot would go to on a, well, I guess a black market for lack of a better term. <laughs> but, um, like my mother-in-law's hairdresser um, said, we'll just come to your house, and. You know, we in a laundry room where we have a floor that can withstand pressures of hair. <laughs> that yeah, easily vacuumed. Et yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, they just okay, and she did her all of her stuff in there, and and I was like, all right, you know, use the sink, and you know, and so now even since then, um, you, you know, the, she still comes to the house and cuts my mother in law's hair, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I was like, that, that is a brilliant way to to Keep you know, go door to door, right? I mean, yeah, it's no... the the
1: house call version, uh, like meeting a doctor making house calls, yeah, right? right? Like, yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, like, and 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 then there's another guy who I know that's that started a complete business over that, and he called it uh, the 911 barber. And uh, he uh, he goes and he goes to people's homes and cuts their hair, I, and and I'm like, wow, that's 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 the thinking outside the box of being able to keep your business up and running, uh, when you can't keep your i mean, you got to pay your bills, right you know, and, and people can't be shut down. And I, but I just like the idea that people are thinking outside that box. I'm not going, well, okay, I got to shut my salon down now because I can't pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and, John
1: like, in the chat just brought up um, a great Napa County, Sonoma County wine country example about people selling high quality wines from wine bars um, and, and wines to go. Right. Which is a huge it's, there's a lot of wine here in, in wine country, and wine country all over the, the U.S. as well, and not just wine, but other places too. Um, you can't get those uh, liquors and alcohols in a store because right. they're very specific to the winery or to the vineyard um, or to the, the, um, the, you know, the manufacturer. And so being able to have that um, kind of at your, at your front door type of service, it's really incredible, great example.
0: Yeah, the, the, uh, that is that is amazing. And uh, to be able to get those quality uh, wines that are normally only at the restaurants or only at those boutiques uh, and, and be able to get them in other places, that's a, that was brilliant. Uh, actually, it was kind of weird that they were allowing alcohol. Uh, the, I, I went into uh, to a restaurant, got food and ordered some drinks, uh, and it was all to go. And it was like in a sippy cup right like like a alcohol I'm like driving down the road with two cups of open, basically open container alcohol sitting in my in my coffee cup holders in my car, and I'm like, this is surreal that I can do
1: this you yeah the, uh, we have a bar at our corner uh where we live, and just down the street about a block away, um and they were you know it was like punch bowls to go basically. Really? <laughs> I was you, wow, that's that's a lot of alcohol to be running around in your car uh, while you temporarily get home. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to see the models that people have come up with, and I think what will be even more interesting is into this year and next year, as the pandemic becomes more normalized, um, what sticks around, right? Right? Where 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 do we continue to see organizations and businesses? Um, find a model that sticks and that they, they, again, double down on and continue to move forward with. Um, and, and, you know, where do, where, where do legal requirements change and um, kind of help us continue to develop new ways of reaching customers and, and um, increasing our capacities as businesses.
0: In the comments, some people are talking about how in certain areas of the country driving around with alcohol in your car is normal. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You guys,
1: I was thinking (laughs) about New Orleans. I was like, Oh, that sounds like New Orleans, but, um, but yeah, (laughs) another place is not so, not so common.
0: (laughs) I I, I get walking through Vegas with beers in your hands. That's, that's common, but just driving around with the sippy cup full of beer in my car was (laughs) a little kind of like, you know, if you pick it up and drink it like a soda, you're uh, going to anyway. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I, I love the fact that uh, the people in this industry can find the humor in, in uh, bad times. And I think it keeps us sane. Uh, That's for sure. Uh, I, I, I want to ask you this one last question. We're really close to the end here, uh, but real quick, how, how are you working um, with uh, people and organizations that are on the margins and what do you do specifically for them to keep them prepared uh, for, um, for to keep business open and whatnot during a disaster?
1: Yeah, um, I walk organizations through a three part framework that really focuses on the people, the place, whether that's physical or virtual places, uh, still a pertinent um, part of your preparedness and uh, the process, how you do business. Um, going into each one of those elements a little bit deeper and talking about what does preparedness look like and feel like for each organization in those three areas. And then building a plan that's sm- that's not you know a 300 page plan, but something that's really tight and actionable so that it can easily be deployed and also built to pivot. So when you develop something and you run it through a testing process or an exercise process, as we call it in the industry, and um, then you you see where the, the point, you know, the pieces are that need to be adjusted or where you might have some de- some dependencies you didn't know about. Uh, And really moving that forward and then allowing that kind of plan to be shared actively um, and really become integral to your organization as you move forward. So it's about having those kind of deeper conversations, not panicking about what crisis looks like or feels like in your in your organization, um, but really rooting into the things that are most important to keeping your industry, uh, your organization, your business afloat, people, process and place.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Alicia. Um, for people trying to uh, find her, her information is in the in the show notes below, um, and then you can always find her at her website, which is uh, to uh dot com. And love to have you on the show again and continue this conversation.
1: Thanks, Todd. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.
0: Bye, bye. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning, and and it's a great conversation, and just goes way too by way too fast. But like I said, please please check her out. It's Tulchin Road. A uh, lot of great information there. Working with some or- wonderful organizations, and I'm looking forward to, to building more uh, with with Alicia in the coming months. Uh, until next time, everybody, please stay safe, and stay hydrated. Follow us on. Oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, follow us on our social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and also we're going to be doing Bullhorn. Bullhorn. Go to Bullhorn.fm. Uh, register today. Follow us there. We're going to be switching over to that platform uh, for doing some live stuff and more interactive uh, timing. So Brian would kill me if I didn't do that. Until next time, stay safe and stay hydrated.